Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we begin podcast number 31 in our series on world history. In episode or or podcast 30, we looked at the four significant problems that were surfacing in the Roman Catholic Church. We looked at the four being immorality, ignorance, plurality, and absenteeism. We did see that the Roman Catholic Church was aware of the problems to the point in the early 1500s forming the Ecumenical Council that lasted for roughly five years from 1512 to 1517. The problem was, again, that addressing those four particular issues by the Roman Catholic higher-ups was one thing, but the issue that the Roman Catholic Church was going to have is the fact that one individual priest by the name of Martin Luther would end up attempting to formulate his own list of questions that he also wanted to see addressed, those becoming the famous, or if you're a Roman Catholic higher up, infamous 95 Theses or questions. We recall, too, in the most important part, if nothing more from that podcast, is that, again, Martin Luther wasn't debating interpretation of Scripture. He wasn't trying to figure out the Holy Trinity. He wasn't asking about, was Jesus really born on this calendar year day of December 25th? He's He's not debating any of that. His issue was mechanical, nuts and bolts ideas. Again, the primary one, the selling of indulgences. The idea that an individual can commit a sin go and ask for forgiveness, and instead of getting repentance, simply digs into his or her wallet, hands over the money, and bam, all is forgiven. That horrified him. But we also saw the way that the Roman Catholic Church defended that. That's a source of income they weren't going to turn away from, not now. That it was the authority of the Pope, thus to deny the legality of indulgences, was to deny the authority of the Pope. So that issue came up along with others that bubble up up around him. And we ended by also realizing that Martin Luther was not this holier-than-thou individual walking around modern-day Germany. Rather, he was also very tough on the Jews, looking at that population as one that could substantiate and justify his claims. As he put, when Christi- if they could not be converted to Christianity, well, then they should be, quote-unquote, dealt with. So from here... Today, we're going to move on then and look at the implications of Martin Luther's 95 questions. And I cannot stress enough as we begin this podcast, number 31, that the printing press was able to express Martin Luther's concerns throughout Europe at the equivalent of what would be considered at that time lightning speed. That printing press was the equivalent of our Twitter, the equivalent of our social media, literally. 
And that's why, again, as I stressed in podcast 30, and I repeat here again in 31, those four issues that I we discussed in the beginning of that podcast were not new. The problem was that now that they're being discussed, the individual formal, former feudal estates are no longer finding out that those problems are just within their community. It turns out that it's also in the communities adjacent to them and then even further away over that uh, close by set of mountains across that river valley on and on to the point that it could be argued and historians have postulated that without the printing press, Martin Luther's questions by and large would have died with him and his immediate close-knit community. But once those ideas were put into print, there was no putting that genie back in the bottle. What also happens, and this is not necessarily the fault of Martin Luther, and therefore, in my opinion, he shouldn't be blamed for it. But the problem, too, is that with those 95 questions that took off throughout Europe, as people started reading those questions and examining them and discussing them, other reformers also arose in response to Luther's issues. Some agreeing with Martin Luther on some things, perhaps disagreeing, but also tacking on a few of their own, adding it to the other issues that Martin Luther was already raising. It's kind of is similar to if you've ever asked a question, generally it's when we're in our younger years rather than older, but if we ever asked our mom and dad or aunt and uncle, whoever was raising us, questions about why is aunt so-and-so this way? Where is uncle so-and-so? Why does my brother or sister blah, blah, blah? And sometimes you get, the, you get that response, don't ask. Oh, I just want to answer this one question answered. But adults are smart enough to know, and as we are hopefully as well able to do, is that oftentimes when we dare to ask one question, we might get that question answered. But oftentimes, what does it leave us with? more questions, right? And again, inherently, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's also why, with the help of the printing press, these ideas protesting some of the tenets and the nuts and bolts and the mechanical issues of the Roman Catholic Church was going throughout Europe in the early early 1500s like wildfires. Thus, what would come out of these questions, these protests, would be the second major defection of Christians from the Roman Catholic Church. We already saw several podcasts ago the way the Orthodox Christians broke off. Again, orthodoxia meaning right way. Well, now we're going to have another massive group, initially primarily in Northern Europe, that are going to also be breaking away to protest some of the mechanical issues of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore come together to celebrate the Eucharist, to celebrate Mass, to practice their faith in a way that makes the most sense to them. Thus, the rise of the Protestant religions. And that's where, in its root word, we see the term protest. So Protestantism, simply put, or easily defined, is any non-Roman Catholic faith, any faith that protests the ideas of Roman Catholicism. So by the 1500s, 
the Roman Catholic Church that was once unified completely within Europe in the former areas of the Roman Empire in 1053, one massive block broke off in the 1050s and 1054 AD with the Orthodox Church, Orthodoxia, right way. And now we have the Protestant breaking off, protesting some of the issues within the Roman Catholic Church, the second major defection, as we could call it, right? So in 1555, under the Peace of Augsburg, the very first Protestant faith was born, named after none other than Martin Luther, Lutheranism. In 1555, with the writing and the acceptance of the Peace of Augsburg, Lutheranism was born. All right, so I know you're begging the question. Where's the Roman Catholic Church coming down on this? Something's telling me that there's not a massive round of applause coming anywhere around the Vatican, and you couldn't be more right on that. No, the Roman Catholic Church, even before the Peace of Augsburg is agreed in 1555, the Roman Catholic Church under Pope Paul III, they get down and dirty really, really fast, and they get to work starting in 1545, 10 years before Augsburg is even born, before Lutheranism becomes a Protestant faith. They seek to address the issues that Martin Luther and other followers were bringing up. So they start in 1545. And you say, well, wait a minute then. Why, that's 10 years before. They should have addressed those issues then, and, and Protestantism never would have come about. Maybe. But you see, when the Roman Catholic Church finally buckles down in order to get some work done and address some grievances, they may be good on their timing to get started, but execution of that can, let's just say, take a little bit of time. Because the Council of Trent would drag on for no less than 18 years, from 1545 to 1563. So they, they got going fairly quickly, but they dragged on in terms of eventually discussing and trying to come out with some resolution. So briefly, what comes out then of the Council of Trent? Simply put, some of the positive outcomes are as follows. Martin Luther, you got your way, buddy. Even though you're going to be excommunicating it anyhow, you got your wish. The sale of indulgences was forevermore eliminated. So that was one positive that came out of it. Secondly, to address the idea of Roman Catholic ignorance, of priests not knowing the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Council of Trent also began establishing a curriculum for seminarians. This is established curriculum that all seminarians would have to study and pass the exams before they could be considered or ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. The curriculum will be revised in the future centuries to the point that within the United States archdiocese, archdiocese throughout the United States, the bachelor's or a bachelor's degree is required before one can uh, become a summit before one can become a Roman Catholic priest. So they were very serious about continuing to update the curriculum to reflect the demands on the changing society for what they need from a Roman Catholic priest. So again, cells of indulgences was eliminated, a curriculum was established for seminarians, and they also abolished secret marriages for Roman Catholic priests to the point 
that priests could not get married, period. Celibacy was now established. So those are three of the, again, good things that came out of it. Anything with the negatives then? Of course, because otherwise we wouldn't have had the Peace of Augsburg signed anyhow in 1555. The problem was is that there was no resolution with other Protestant thoughts and religions. By and large, it appeared as though the Roman Catholic Church was turning its back on Martin Luther and his immediate followers. The thought was, ignore them and they'll go away. Well, the Catholic Church was right on that. Ignore them and they did go away, but they didn't fade away. Rather, the ignoring them and excommunicating Martin Luther literally emboldened them to continue to press on with their complaints and eventually, again, with no resolution coming out of that from the Council of Trent, or not enough of them, that's when the, the Protestant faith would be born. While the reforms that they did attempt to establish were sure, the execution of them was extremely slow. And that's also why they lost followers and the Protestant faiths, starting with Lutheranism, would continue moving forward with another one that we'll cover uh, in the following podcast, that eventually being Calvinism. So this is what the Roman Catholic Church proper, with news coming out of the Vatican, in other words, the Council of Trent, what's coming out from those series of meetings over a period of 18 years. Well, is anything else going on within the Roman Catholic community that is attempting to try to overcome the movement and the momentum of Protestantism. Protestantism, absolutely. And that would be the rise of just a few that we'll cover here of new religious orders within the Roman Catholic Church. Some of the, all the three that I'm going to focus on, you will recognize, or the average person in the United States anyhow will recognize, although some of these orders are worldwide as well. But the first that's going to come out of it was a man born in 1491, who was an adult priest as time went on in the 1500s, who saw what Martin Luther was doing and was horrified by it. And he sought to fight back, but not through the tools of the Roman Catholic Church with what would eventually come out of Trent. In fact, he'd be dead anyhow before Trent was finally established, um, before Trent was uh, concluded and the resolutions that came out of it. But that man that I'm referring to, who would eventually be canonized and a saint within the Roman Catholic Church, none other, born in 1491, St. Ignatius Loyola. His goal was to win back converts to Lutheranism. He wanted to win back anybody that was leaving the Roman Catholic Church for those nuts and bolts ideas selling of indulgences, ignorant priests, priests that are nowhere to be found, absenteeism, we talked, as we called it, talked about. That's what St. Ignatius of Loyola is going to attempt to, uh, that's his goal. And he's going to do it primarily through a mission that is still part of Loyola University's missions through the 21st century, and that is through education. He forms a subset of archdiocesan priest, where he educates them further than any other archdiocesan priest at that time. And that's where, in terms of Loyola, his goal was to win converts back, 
not through intimidation, but through education. So he forms a, a group of priests that he calls members of the Society of Jesus. This is the reason why to this day, a Jesuit priest will sign their name as my uncle, who was a Jesuit from Loyola University, who my first son is named after, first, middle, and last name. He would sign his name Father F.R., or the Reverend, Father John J. Kinsella. And after his name, he would put the letters S.J., meaning, yes, he's a priest, but he is a member of the Society of Jesus. And that S.J., he was so proud to put, despite, again, the number of years that he had to be in school, having a boatload of degrees. He collected degrees the way I collect hood ornaments, and a very, very educated man. And it's argued that the Jesuit priests today are some of the most educated priests worldwide. So Ignatius and his followers, through education, were able to reconvert much of the southern states, southern German states. But again, the goal, however, was not so much to educate at a basic level, but to build on one's current level of knowledge. In other words, Ignatius wasn't looking to zero in on the illiterate. He wasn't looking to zero in on individuals that had no clue what an education was or never went to a day of school in their lives. Ignatius didn't see those individuals as a threat. What he saw as a threat were the educated people of society that had the ability to read and write and therefore influence others to also leave the Roman Catholic Church. It was a very, very judicious decision on his end to look at and to go in to zero in on the educated people of European society. That mission, by and large, hasn't changed today through the 21st century, as I have a brother and sister who are educated at Loyola University, as well as my wife, that I don't hold against her. Uh, I'm a DePaul graduate. DePaul University in Chicago and Loyola University in Chicago are our rival schools. So not only is that a point of contention between my wife and I, uh, the fact that I applied to Loyola University for my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree and was denied both times until they realized, wait a minute, that's the same Kinsella that's also a priest running around here. Then it was overturned and I was accepted. But by that point, no, sorry, I had already jumped over into the DePaul camp. But it is just, you know, uh, fun banter between my wife and I is, again, being rival graduates. However, I do think she took it just a bit too far when anybody that sees my wife driving down the street, you'll know it's her because she has that license plate with L-O-Y-O-L-A right across the front and back plates. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just light banter. Anyhow. That, again, as I say, the goal of Loyola University, again, it hasn't changed today. Loyola University, it's not that they don't recruit to first-generation graduates, but for the most part, they seek to focus on individuals who had already attended Loyola University, individuals who are coming from families of educated people, etc. It's, it's not that they only want one or the other, but it, again, it's, 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 it's an organization, it's a group of people, of applicants, prospective students, that they zero in on. Universities, such as my alma mater for my undergraduate, St. Xavier University on Chicago's southwest side, DePaul University that we'll discuss in a moment, they are looking and we're looking to, to educate the first generation college bound. The difference is, is that when an institution 
pledges to educate the first generation college bound you need more support offices to assist those freshmen coming in because they can't turn to mom and dad because they don't understand what the what their son or daughter is going through because they had never gone to college. It's not a criticism. It's just a reality. But those support offices cost money. They take resources. And again, not all institutions are seeking to do that. They want to, they're zeroing in on the non-first generation college bound, again, because the support services generally tend to be a little bit less. So from there, we look at, uh, as I say, St. Ignatius Loyola, born in 1491, died, ironically enough, a year after Augsburg was signed in 1556. Another man born while Loyola is running around, uh, Europe, or shortly after he died, I should say, that of St. Vincent de Paul, who was born in 1581. He also gathers a group of priests together that he refers to as the Congregation of the Mission. My priests that taught me at DePaul University, if they were a Vincentian, they would also sign their names to, with the title Reverend or Father, but after their name, instead of an SJ, they would put a C. Uh, C as in Charles, M as in Mary, Congregation of the Mission. They sought to educate the underprivileged. So while Loyola was going after the educated classes, DePaul was was zeroing in on the undereducated or underprivileged uh, people in society. No different than an individual that was already seeking converts within the Roman Catholic Church, however, a couple of centuries before, and that would be the group that formed in 1256 AD and called themselves Augustinian after St. Augustine of Hippo. When an Augustinian signs their name, it would be Father So-and-so, O-S-A. They are a member of the Order of St. Augustine. Their objective was to seek the truth through learning, but never at the expense of fellow human beings. They had no interest in intimidation. They had no interest in violence. They were seeking to do it by setting or through example or through educating, which is reason why the Augustinians are also a class of priests that are also educators inherently as well. St. Augustine was also known which is part of the reason why these men formed their group and named him after him, even though he had not walked the earth at that point in well over 600 years, because Augustine also was a master at simplicity. It is often sometimes a point of anxiety for young Roman Catholic uh, young children in Roman Catholic schools, as they get into a certain grade level, sometimes it's first grade, sometimes second or third, where they have to learn the Ten Commandments and they're sweating bullets, making sure that they have those Ten Commandments down and they've got them in order, etc. St. Augustine, just a master at simplicity, where he would just say, don't worry about the Ten Commandments. Love God, love one another, love yourself, and do whatever else you want. Just do whatever else you want. Don't worry about the commandments. Love God, love others, love yourself, then do whatever else you want. And you might say, well, yeah, that's a simplification. It doesn't address the commandments. Actually, it incorporates all of them. Love God has to deal with the first three. Loving your, say, your neighbor as well as yourself, that takes care of the last seven. If you have love in your heart, you love God, you love yourself, you love your neighbor, you're not going to have to worry about lying. 
You're not going to have to worry about stealing. You're not going to have to worry about those things, which we call sin, because you're, you're too busy loving, right? So that, again, is just one a quick example of the simplicity of St. Augustine. Now, why, as we begin to wrap up this podcast, why did I mention about with St. Augustine, that he, the, the Augustinians, that he had no interest in intimidation or violence, because that was also something that was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Protestant movement. And that is what became known as the Inquisition. You've heard of that word, or at least I would imagine most of my listeners would have heard of that word. Uh, we can sometimes play with the word today. Uh, sometimes, uh, I remember myself when I was at Marist High School in Chicago's Southwest Side, when a, when a classmate of mine was goofing around for the umpteenth time, and one of the brothers saw him and said, down to the principal's office, and I'll be sure that you get nothing less than the Inquisition as a response for your bad behavior. Well, in other words, everything was going to be thrown at him, uh, right, for what he did. So the Inquisition, a powerful instrument of the Roman Catholic Church to inhibit and or possibly eliminate the forces of the Reformation. It consisted of six cardinals with judicial authority, but also possessed the authority to arrest, imprison, and execute. They sought to attack the sources of heresy and its primary followers. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the six cardinals and their successors became the judge, the jury, and the executioners all in one. In terms of the effects of the Inquisition that would start at this time period and last for hundreds of years, while it was effective within the papal states, very effective within the papal communities around modern-day Rome and modern-day Italy, outside of the papal states and through all of Europe, not only was it ineffective, one could argue that it was counterproductive. All that did was drive Protestant thinking even further. It's bad enough that the Roman Catholic priests were selling indulgences. Now, if I dare to ask questions, if I dare to question my faith, that I can actually be tortured, I can be executed, and all that has to happen is somebody says, good old Chris over there is talking on his podcast again, Father, talking about Protestant faiths. All I, all I need is one person to report me, and it's up to me to prove that that's not what I was doing. I ask you, how do you prove a negative, right? How do I prove that I wasn't doing something? Either I was or I wasn't, right? And this is the reason why the Inquisition spread terror throughout the European papal states and throughout the European countries as well, to the point that anybody that was on the fence wanted to be a good Christ Roman Catholic, still a Christian, but was now considering some of the questions that the Protestant thinkers were posing, news of the Inquisition can put them right over the other side of the fence, right into the hands of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and other Protestant thinkers that will be coming of age in what becomes known as the age of the Protestant Reformation. So, that concludes this podcast. When we come back next time, we're going to look at other issues that will be affecting the European countries as we know them, with the effects still lasting to the 21st century.
The first thing that's going to happen that we'll discuss next time is the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, you guessed it, they're going to go to war with one another. And the war will last decades. But unlike the Hundred Years' War that lasted for 116 years, this particular war is only going to last 30 years, hence its name, the Thirty Years' War. But when it ends in 1648, well, not to give away the end of the story there, when it ends in 1648, it will be arguably one of the greatest turning points in all of Western civilization. At the same time that they're going to be tearing them, the Protestants and the Catholics are going to be tearing apart the European continent, something else is also just putting European society in absolute whirlwind. Because for the first time in the age of the post-Renaissance, news is beginning to trickle throughout the Eurasian continent that the world, physically, planet Earth, may not be as small as they had once thought. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments and or book recommendations you might have. If you like what we discussed today, put a post on that on your uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram feed. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.